Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 25 of Rebreak Radio. I'm Dennis, and today I am joined by Mike. Hello. Also known as Ready H Month. That is true. On uh, Twitter. Yeah. Cool. Um, so you just came back from GDC, Game Developers Conference. Yep. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later. Um, but first, we're just going to quickly talk a little bit about what games we've played. And um, yeah, just to, if you want to take this as like the games that you played at GDC, like just um, whatever you found most interesting or like whatever you played on your other time or whatever. So what have you played? Sure. Um, so before I get to what I played at GDC, just generally what I played recently, uh, I tend to like you know focus more on PC gaming. So recently uh, I've been playing Crusader Kings 2. Elder Scrolls Legends, uh, and then I recently just got Assassin's Creed Origins and have been sinking my teeth into that. And then a little time before that, I played for the first time South Park The Stick of Truth and absolutely loved that. Um, at GDC, uh, I tended to gravitate more towards the uh, Indie Games Festival um, nominees. So I played uh, Getting Over It with Bennett Foddy, uh, Night in the Woods, West of Loathing, which actually there was a Switch uh, demo being passed around, but it's not available yet. It was more just a uh, technical showpiece, um, which was fun. Uh, Baba is You. Uh, I played a bit of Cuphead for the first time. Didn't really play a ton of it beforehand. Uh, I played uh, Chuchel, uh Celeste, which was uh, there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think of other things off the top of my head. Um, played a little Tacoma. Um... And uh, I think that's mostly it for IGF. And then outside of that, are I there, did. Are uh, there some... a lot of already like released games at GDC? Yeah, there's a few. Uh, so the IGF, if you're not familiar, is the Indie Games Festival. A lot of those games uh, that are nominated are games that were launched in 2017 and that were submitted. Okay. So most of those games are out and available. Um, uh, but some of the other ones that aren't released are the more technical demos that are being used as proof of concept to just show stuff and that's more from the big publishers or the big names out there so uh, for example uh, Unreal Engine and Epic Games is always there showing off stuff so obviously uh, they had some Fortnite demos going on just to show people who hadn't played Fortnite and then uh, in the Oculus booth they were doing a bunch of demos just for proof of concept for VR and AR so one of the cool things is I got to play uh, Settlers of Catan uh, the VR experience at the Oculus booth with um, both the Oculus Rift and then the Oculus Go, um, which I don't think is currently at a production release date, so it was like a very early tech demo. Uh, but that was a lot of fun. And then, uh, yeah, some other stuff I can't necessarily get into or talk about for, for uh, legal reasons uh, because I had to see it behind closed doors. But yeah, so uh, a lot of cool stuff going on there. Yeah, that's cool. cool. Uh, what was your... Uh... The favorite game that you uh, played? Um, I would have to say probably Baba is You, uh, Baba is You, or uh, Getting Over It with Bennett Foddy. Uh, they're kind of hard to describe. I would recommend looking them up if you have the chance. I'm familiar uh, and with I think uh, Getting Over It. Okay, Getting Over It. Yeah, it's just a very odd mechanic, and it plays really well for kind of the show floor atmosphere of just mm. people looking at that game and like just watching other people play it, and it's it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, 
I really enjoyed playing that. Uh, Baba is You, obviously, just because of how innovative it is for game design with like using words to change the way mechanics work in that game. And, uh, you know, and it, it's, it's a very uh, interesting concept and interesting game to play. And then the other one was uh, probably uh, Chuchel, which uh, was nominated for Excellence in Visual Art for the IGFs. And that game is just, um, it's, it's very novel. So yeah, I, it, all those games are very difficult to explain unless you actually play them. But uh, I'd recommend for everybody listening to, to check that out if you, if you have the chance. Cool. cool. Well, uh, as for what I have played. Uh, ah, what, yeah, what have you played? <laughs> yeah, um, I have went, gone back and played all the SteamWorld games again. Have you, are you familiar with the SteamWorld games? Not really. So the, it's um it's like a Swedish indie uh series of games and uh they're really really awesome. It's more I think the most famous game in the series is Steam World Dig Two, which came out last year. It was uh, a meteoric hit on Switch. Um, <clears throat> so and they've since uh, ported Steam World Dig One and Steam World Heist to switch again so i've gotten them and i've played through them all so steam world dig is it's um basically imagine what would happen if you merged metroid with minecraft okay basically so you you go into like a mine and you start digging down and you start collecting uh resources and uh, you basically dig your own path through the world, and then you go back up and you sell your uh, your gems and you <clears throat> buy upgrades to your character, um, so that you can dig longer and uh, you can stay down there for a longer time. You have more health, um, and you also have like this lantern that goes out after a while, and you can upgrade it to keep going longer and longer. So it's um it's a really fun game and um. The story is uniquely like or like oddly interesting for being like such a simple indie game, so to speak, like that is not really focused on the story. Like you can completely ignore all of the all of the um like text boxes in the game and you'll still like understand why the story is cool. Um basically it's like set in in an alternate universe of Earth, where, like the like back in like the early, I don't know exactly when that was, but like when steam technology started becoming, um, like was starting to cre- being created and all that stuff. Like, what if that became more like prevalent, and uh, they started making more of that? So they started making like steam bots and eventually humans became um too lazy so uh, robots just took over the world because humans didn't have anything to do yeah so like steampunk yeah um that's cool yeah uh, it's it's really cool and later on like you realize basically that humans aren't dead and all this stuff and it's actually a really cool uh story and what happens later on is like then they made Steam World Heist, which 
is a turn-based strategy game. It's a, like a completely different uh, kind of game. If you're familiar with Fire Emblem, it's kind of a little bit like that. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's not... It's more like it's still on a 2D plane, so like a side-scrolling plane, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's uh, that's a really cool game. And uh, then they made SteamWorld Dig 2. So Yeah, I just found that on Steam, so I just added it to my wish list. Yeah, they're really, really awesome games. They're also on 3DS if you want to play them portably. I might, I might get them there. Um, I think they're actually, to get that on the Switch. I think they're actually all on sale right now on 3DS, so... Okay, I'll look into it. Um, then I've also played... I played a new game that I found um, on... Do you know about um, uh, Game Maker's Toolkit? Mark Brown, a YouTuber. Um, is it anywhere familiar to Game Maker, like the uh, the platform, like GML? No, 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 no. It's like it's a okay. it's a YouTube channel about uh, okay. game design and stuff like that. And oh no, I'm not familiar. He he made a video about uh, what is it that makes a good puzzle in a game, and in it he showed off a game called Snakebird. Have you seen, uh, heard about this? I have not. This is this is digging past my mm-hmm. my general knowledge. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's a game. It's on Steam and mobile, I think, and I have it on mobile. It's uh, it's just a puzzle game where you play as this like snake shaped bird, and you have to just you have to like collect all the the fruit in the stage and then go through a portal. And um, yeah, it's a <clears throat> it's a very hard puzzle game, and I'm enjoying it right now. So uh, nice. That was a cool game. Um, other than that. Oh yeah, I also played Shantae and the Pirate's Curse. Do you know what game that is? I've heard of it, but I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, so yeah, Shantae is like a long-running franchise. It's like a very interesting yeah. franchise in terms of like how it's like it was originally published by Capcom, and it was it had one game on the Game Boy, and it came out in like 2001, like years after the Game Boy was relevant. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and then somehow, way forward, who makes the game somehow got the rights to it, and they made a new game on DSiWare, and then they made one on 3DS and one on current gen consoles. And Pirates Curse is the one that came out on 3DS and had then been ported to like everything at this point. And uh, yeah, it's uh it's an amazing um, Metroidvania style game. Nice. Yeah. So I've been playing that too. Uh, but yeah. So let's get into uh, the GDC part of the show. So what is GDC? Uh, So at its base level, GDC is what it means, just the Game Developers Conference. It's where game developers from around the world, uh, well, realistically around the world, but in practicality, recently more difficult for that to be true, um, where game developers from around the world get together to talk about uh, best practices, uh, what they're working on to showcase games, um, to talk about the industry and how the industry is doing and what we could be doing to make the industry better. Um, and there's a lot of ways we go about doing that. One of the larger uh, institutions at GDC is the International Game Developers Association, or the IGDA, and they have a lot of subset branches. Uh, I'm a member of the IGDA, as many of the people who go to GDC are. And there's a bunch of different groups you can get into, like the IGDA Indie uh, Special Interest Group, or SIG, 
Um, there's a game design SIG, a QA SIG, production SIG, um, an LGBTQ plus SIG. Um, there's like all kinds of different representations about game developers, uh, the games they're making, and that kind of stuff. But also, it's a great event for networking, meeting people that you know you might not know or see on a daily basis, and just uh, being able to connect with them, talk to them about their games, and uh, you know maybe collaborate or have them as a contact, and uh, you know be able to bounce ideas off of in the future and then you know since i've been going this is like my fifth year some of the people that i met uh in my first year seeing them as students like i was you know it's always a good place to be able to reconnect with them and see where they are so some of the people i met and you know worked with my first year um that were students in my um you know freshman sophomore juniors in various universities i can now call all good friends that work in ea Bungie, Psionics, Riot Games, uh, you know, all over the industry. So it's a great place to like, you know, reconnect with old friends as well. Cool. Cool. So what um um ask someone like me who's like trying to get into the industry and someone who isn't necessarily in the games industry, is there any um per like is there a reason like I uh, why should I go to GDC for instance? Like, could I yeah, get anything um, out of it? Well, yeah, so I guess I could address that pretty well because uh, this is the first year that I've actually been able to go as a developer. Uh, and actually on my name tag had NetherRealm Studios, which was, you know, a huge moment for me. Mm -hmm. but for the last four years, I've been going as a student uh, and I was going as a networking opportunity, but also to know what the bar was for getting into the industry and kind of to see how people talked and get the language of the industry and like certain, you know, basic things down and kind of getting a feel for that. So there's a lot of value going as somebody who's not a developer who wants to be a developer. And, you know, anybody who makes any games is at this point considered a developer, which wasn't always the case in the past. Um, but yeah, you can get a lot out of it just from learning the way developers use certain tools or what tools they're using or just the way they talk about games and learning how to make games and a lot of things that you probably never would have thought of. Um, like, for example, this year uh, I was at the roundtable for Quality Assurance, and there was a lot of cool things that I never thought about uh, in terms of QA that I found super valuable that I was able to then bring back and work on uh, doing QA uh, at NetherRealm, because that's what I currently do uh, for, like, automation and um, best practices and making sure, like, our bug reporting techniques were a little bit more concise. So uh, there's always something you could learn. Um, and... Uh, Again, probably the most valuable thing in my mind is just the networking and being able to, to talk to people and just to get to know people who are like you, because there's definitely going to be people like you that are, are not in the industry but want to get in. Specifically, there are parts of GDC that have the career pavilion where students come and listen to uh, postmortem talks from guys from Blizzard about game design or engineering or building your own tools and stuff like that. So there's definitely a skew for... Um, you know, aspiring game developers there. So I would, I would say it's very valuable for people who, you know, are hoping to get in and uh, aren't sure yet, but, you know, want to learn more. Yeah, like, I would say my, my experience with GDC is all of the awesome GDC talks that they post on their YouTube channel. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, I've, I've listened to a lot of them, and, like, a lot of the times, I don't understand anything <laughs> of what they're yeah. talking about because it's a lot of like, and that is something that I like about it. Like, it's really focused uh, to game this uh, to uh, game developers. 
mm-hmm. because like they bring up code on screen sometimes. So it's like, yeah, I don't understand that, but like the pe- the people that who are programmers who are there to learn about the specific like, for example, like I I watched one with their when they were talking about how they made the sand in Journey, and and like the people who are there, like they're there so they can learn how to make good sand in a game. <laughs> so when the dude shows up, like how they made the sand, like with like like exactly how the shader is coded and all that stuff, like yeah, that is exactly what that person wants to know. And uh, um, because it, like a lot of the times when it comes to like developer interviews, like in in like uh, the games media side and all that stuff, like um, it's just completely useless to a game developer because um, they don't really go deep enough for it to be um, for them to be able to uh, learn anything from it. If that makes sense. So I yeah. like the GC like really goes deep and uh, about like exactly how it works and all that stuff, sharing yeah, the knowledge go- with the rest of the industry. Yeah, and kind of going off of what you were just saying there, um, one valuable tool from actually attending GDC is if there was something in that talk that you didn't understand after every single talk, the speakers always go to a breakout room to answer questions and talk afterwards. So if you like you didn't understand something specifically about that talk or about how that shader or like how it worked or uh, what compiling uh, methods they used, you could always go to them and talk and figure out like, oh, I didn't get this. Could you explain it more and, you know, more than... I would say more than 90% of the time, they're more than happy to have somebody ask them about their work because, you know, it's a very selfish endeavor, you know, wanting to talk about your work and what you work on. So, um, and that's, you know, very useful, but kind of also going back to not understanding certain things. Like before the show, I was telling you that I'm not a traditionally trained, like designer, programmer, whatever. I'm a, I was a student of business who got into game design and then, you know, game development. Mm. Um, like at GDC this year, there was a talk about acing your whiteboard interview, which is essentially if you're interviewing for an engineering position, uh, being able to do pseudocode and work through a problem. Mm. So I was watching a talk somebody give um, on that, and for their whiteboard interview, they were creating pseudocode uh, in C++, and then somebody decided to take the extra step and actually put their code into like a pseudocode for assembly. And if you're not a- familiar with assembly, it's very it's like a, a bitch to work with. So uh, like I, I was going through that not with any traditional programming like background in my mind, but because I've worked with it and been you know to so many conventions uh, or so many GDCs in the past, I had a general understanding of what they were saying, and then actually was able to correct the speaker on one thing in terms of like what she was doing wrong with the C plus plus by saying like oh you know you should have had it here instead of there, and eventually you get the hang of it. So kind of having more exposure over the years has definitely helped, and probably would help people if they go to GDC a lot like I have. Yeah. Um, yeah, like assembly. That's basically like, like obviously computers, like quote unquote, talk in the ones and zeros, and we yeah. program usually in codes in code like C, C plus plus, and whatever, all Java, all that stuff. And assembly is yeah. basically the step in between those, where it's like, yeah, real engine level stuff, like yeah. super super deep. That if you, yeah, it's 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 very difficult to wrap your head around sometimes. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, so what did you specifically do at GDC? Uh, so, like, I, the majority of the time, if I can get on the show floor and play games, uh, I tend to do that in my first day because it's a little bit lighter on the talks. Um, and, and then afterwards, uh, af- after I get, you know, the games in and the games I want to play before the IGFs actually happen, 
Uh, then I tend to network more. I go to the roundtables for each of the special interest groups in the IGDA. So like the QA roundtable, the Indie roundtable, um, the production roundtable, the legal roundtable, and I do a lot of networking and uh, talk to people. And then intermittently between there, uh, I'll go to specific tech talks about very specific things that I either I find interesting or want to learn more about. Uh, and you know, in the past, a lot of that has been uh, like revolving around uh, creating your own studio or working as an indie or working in smaller teams. But as time has gone on, uh, I've been kind of gearing more towards uh, VR and AR experiences just because technically it's fascinating to me. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to see the evolution of uh, VR and gaming at GDC since 2014. Uh, so it's 2013-2014. Um, so I tend to gravitate more towards those because every year it gets more and more crazy. So that's primarily what I do. And then after hours GDC, uh, there are always parties going on. So uh, this year, um, just to name drop a bit, there was a party hosted by Zynga. One of my friends works there, so we always go there to that every year. Uh, Epic Games threw one, and Fortnite was obviously uh, involved with that. And then there are a few smaller parties thrown by some indie developers that are um, friends of mine that I go to. So just kind of reconnecting and uh, going to those events. So that's generally what I do most at uh, at GDC. And then you know, collect business cards and uh, you know, talk to people and see what they want to do and try to put them in contact with people I know who might be able to use their talents. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I guess let's uh, get into one of the coolest things that I saw out of GDC was uh, like the new advancements to Unreal Engine that epic showed off did you see this at all yeah um so probably one of the very first days uh there was they were doing a technical demo for being able to integrate rigging from maya in real time uh within um the unreal editor and actually being able to uh while in maya be able to uh change augments and um change the uh skeletal meshing uh within like a for example, like a character, and see it in real time as it moved uh, as a cinematic in the Unreal Editor. And that was really cool. Um, and I don't tend to work a lot with rigging in games, but just to see that as an application where Unreal is, again, kind of ahead of the curve in terms of like what they can do, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to Unity, which is usually always playing catch-up, but is like an open source. And I tend to be for open source um, you know, uh, software anytime I can be, but Unreal is just killing it. Um, so that was really cool to see as a technical demo. And then also to see that they're progressing even more so with integration plugins for uh, their Blueprint system, which is primarily how I make games because, again, I'm not you know, classically trained in programming, mm-hmm. but um, I'm, I'm a visual learner. So it was uh, cool to get my hands on some of that stuff. And then also uh, talking to the guys from Unreal and uh, specifically uh, uh, Team Paragon and, you know, talking to them about uh, releasing everything or the majority of all their code and assets for free in the Unreal Store and how I think that's going to be a benefit for people who are just coming up now as game developers to have all these you know, AAA assets available to them. So yeah, there are a couple cool demos and a couple things behind the scenes that I can't necessarily talk about uh, tech-wise uh, going through uh, VR stuff that they're working on. But yeah, I did have a healthy amount of time working or talking to the, uh, the guys from Epic about... Uh, UE4 and it's kind of future roadmap. Yeah, um 
was it the the siren demo that you were talking about that you were talking about before or was it something else uh specifically for the for the rigging yeah yeah uh so that was uh i mean they they showed a couple of different use cases but uh i believe yeah it was the, it was the siren demo um and it was kind of like a a side um Kind of like a side, not side scrolling fighting game, but more of a, a fighter and being able to show uh, the rigging that they used to pull in um, the skeletal mesh from Maya and being able to manipulate it in real time in Maya and see its end result in uh, in Unreal. So that was really cool to see. <clears throat> yeah, uh, one of the like, um, I was specifically very um, impressed by. Um, Siren, which was basically like they showed off like a digital human being acted in real time by oh yeah no mm-hmm. yeah i i yeah i I was talking about something completely different about like ringing it, but yeah, so they had uh yeah motion capture and uh yeah being able to show that in real time, and they did that tech demo, I think I saw it three or four different times because it was something that they were just really hammering home, um and that's something. That specifically is super interesting uh, to me in my use case because at NetherRealm, some people probably don't know, uh, we have our own motion capture studio. So we frequently bring in people and do our own motion capture for all of our games. Um, So that was something in real time, being able to create that quick feedback loop of, you know, uh, trying to get the minimal viable product of something and seeing how it works in real time. So you have more ability to be agile and be like, okay, that's not exactly what we're, we're looking for. Let's try this or let's try that and uh seeing um you know getting getting the best uh results that you can but yeah yeah that one was really cool yeah and i i watched um like a talk that um unreal did like about how they made uh that 3d bottle and wow that was some really really impressive stuff there and they also showed off like um andy circus doing um like a performance that they then put on a digital version of Andy Circus, but they also put it on like an alien character. Um and like I first saw that video on IGN and I was like I was looking and it and it was like a side by side. You could see Andy Circus on the left and you could see like the alien on the right doing the same performance. And I was like is that Andy Circus real? <laughs> like I could not see like is that a digital Andy Circus? And then later on, I was like, "Yeah, it's a digital Andy Circus." But like, damn, it was like really impressive. I wonder how, like, how powerful the computer is that is running that in real time because that is sure ain't running on a, um, on a like commercial uh, level uh, computer. Yeah, I mean, it all has to do with um, <clears throat> like how they're encoding that information. Um. And it actually might be, I think it probably is related technically to what I was seeing before. So I couldn't think off the top of my head. So I just went back through my notes from GDC. Um, the uh, proprietary uh, tool plugin they were using between Maya and Unreal, it's called LiveLink. Mm-hmm. So the idea is it's an animation uh, data through external sources. Um, and it uses .ml MLL, uh, source files to like encode in real time, if you're editing something in Maya, being able to see it in real time in Unreal, and I think vice versa. Um, so I think that might have had some hand in that, uh, you know, black magic, which somehow Epic Games is always figuring out a way to do. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I, I, 
you'd be surprised the amount of uh, power you can get out of some of the you know uh, top tier workstation uh, graphics cards and uh, CPUs. But yeah, it was it was crazy to see both of those demos happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's see, was there anything else cool that was uh, shown off at PC? Um, let me think. I mean, I guess off the top of my head, Oculus always has a really cool booth, and uh, I think I was telling you before in the pre-show that uh, I had played Settlers of Catan VR, and one of the weird things for me was um, when I was doing that demo, I'm not sure if you're familiar um, with, uh, do you know who Jesse E. Shell is? No. Okay, so Jesse Shell wrote basically the like the game design bible. Like He was the guy who really pioneered like early game design and being able to implement that on like a like being able to teach game design in an academic environment and he is the CEO and founder of Shell Games in Pittsburgh and he's also been like a very large proponent of VR and kind of like a pioneer of VR um with uh you know some of the greats and it was crazy because like I'm a big fan of his work and a big fan of what he does and I actually know a few people that work for him in production at uh at Shell Games and when I was doing this technical demo um, I had heard him and he was like behind me to like, you know, calling things out of like what to do in the game. So it was like unreal for me to be sitting playing Settlers of Catan in VR with one of the pioneers of VR standing right behind me, like kind of sort of shit talking me. So it was kind of fun. I think that was probably the most uh, interesting and crazy zany thing that happened at the show uh, for me. And then outside of the show, uh, I got to meet uh, Danny O'Dwyer for the first time, which was kind of cool. Um yeah, so I'm sure you're familiar with Danny from from Kind of Funny, right? Yeah, yeah. Or when he was with uh, Gamesdale, yeah. So I met him. He gave me a he. He's like, "Can I interest you in a slightly soiled, sweaty sticker?" And I'm like, "Sure." <laughs> so he gave me a sticker for no clip. Um, but yeah, so uh, that's probably the most exciting things I did at GDC this year. Cool. Yeah. So there was a lot of talk before GDC, or it's uh, there's a lot of talk before every GDC of like. Oh, what's gonna be announced? What's gonna be announced? And like, like obviously, GDC is a developer-focused show. So I always thought it was so weird that people were like speculating, "Oh, what are people gonna announce at a developer-focused show?" And like, is that a weird thing to think, or like for me, or is like, do 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 companies actually announce like commercial stuff at GDC? Um. In my experience, very rarely will you ever see a major announcement um, come from GDC just because most of those announcements are either going to be saved for uh, E3 when that rolls around because we're not that far away from E3 and most people are going to keep the cap on that. Or you'll see what like Nintendo does and uh, you know they'll do their, um, uh, their, their kind of smaller, more uh, easily digestible format things for like the, the Nintendo Directs. Um, and like I was telling you uh, when we had ch- talked, like, you know, uh, via message on Discord earlier, like, you know, Nintendo didn't really have much of a presence, and they never really do have much of a presence at GDC, which is kind of a shame, because I'd like to see more of them. They don't really have a booth They had um, two uh, talks. They had an, a talk about the development of ARMS and one about the development of Splatoon and Splatoon 2. Yeah, but so that's like, a, so they'll... They'll have people come and give talks from Nintendo, but they're not necessarily representative of Nintendo. They're just an individual from Nintendo, and that's usually how the talks go. But Nintendo as a company doesn't have a presence in the same way Oculus does or 
Unreal does or Microsoft or Sony does, who have these giant show booths on the mm-hmm. floor where you can come and talk to developers and you know actually you know get a feeling for the company itself. But going back to your question, yeah, uh, we don't really have a lot of uh, announcements there just because it's not the same nature and there's not that kind of fervor around getting an announcement. This is more for, I mean, this is really like inside baseball. It's like people in the industry wanting to talk about what we're doing and looking at each other's games and stuff. So there's not a lot of announcements, uh, generally speaking. But in years past, there have been some, but not many. So I would just say as a consumer, I wouldn't look towards GDC as some sort of hope for any sort of announcement. And uh, generally within the industry, it's not the best place to announce it. It's more of a time to celebrate the games that have been out like during the Game Developers Choice Awards and during the IGFs, rather than talk about games that will come out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, I think, though, in terms of, like, actually specifically on the ARMS and Splatoon talks, like, I think they were actually the directors of the games we were talking yeah. about. Yeah. And also, like, last year, uh, they did a talk on Breath of the Wild, and that was um, the director of Breath of the Wild and, I believe, Eiji Anuma was there as well so um and i think at least at least these talks have been like actual nintendo developers i'm not familiar if they have been uh, if they've been doing any other talks as well but um, yeah and i'm not saying that they're like not nintendo developers what i'm saying mm-hmm. is um they're not representative of nintendo they're, they could be a developer from nintendo but they're not there in any official capacity yeah, to yeah, like I, I hire or talk about the company and all that and like kind of going to that uh, in 2015, I saw Ted Price, who is the founder and CEO of Insomniac Games, give a post-mortem on Sunset Overdrive, mm. which was really cool. But like, you know, Insomniac, I think, had a bit of a presence there. They they definitely had a presence this year because they were doing some hiring and ramp-ups for uh, the new Spider-Man game mm. uh, that will be coming out uh, towards the end of this year. Um, but like, you know, at that, that year, uh, they had just worked on, or they were working on Song of the Deep, or were just finishing up post-ops on Song of the Deep. So, like, they weren't there in any official capacity, but, you know, they had their CEO there, and he was just giving a talk, and, you know, like, you you were saying the Nintendo guys there talk about ARMS and, uh, you know, other stuff. Uh, they are kind of there to talk about what they had learned or what mm-hmm. they thought they could have done differently to teach other people, because our industry is unique in the sense that we're very free-form with giving information out, especially because you have so many people within the industry who move between multiple companies, so kind of sharing that goodwill and being able to say, okay... This is where we messed up. This is what we learned, and this is what you sh- guys should take back to your studio and like not make the same mistake we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's always super useful to have. Yeah, that's very cool. Like, um, yeah, and I also think like it could be like why Nintendo doesn't have a big presence at GCs because like I think the Japanese culture is a lot more secretive, mm-hmm. and I think that is also where the game. In, like that might be like where the game industry uh got all of its secrecy from possibly um yeah um yeah a lot of the it's kind of hard to pinpoint where all that secrecy came from and i think a lot of it had to do with uh definitely from the japanese model of like making games uh but also i think a lot of uh japanese developers have a hard time con- like confining to the format in gdc about talking about certain mechanics just because a lot of Japanese games tend to be so innovative. And so, like we were talking about beforehand, how like novel some of the concepts out of Nintendo are that, you know, 
the, the games they make aren't necessarily like they don't have the intent of making a Mario game. They make a game with weird mechanics and then later implement it being a Mario game. Mm-hmm. And since those mechanics are so new and so different, sometimes it's difficult to uh, talk about those in any meaningful way because not everybody can quite wrap their head around a mechanic unless they played a game and those games have to be out. So like there have been definitely interesting postmortems uh, from Japanese developers, but uh, talking about the mechanics that they're working on currently is sometimes a little bit difficult to do. Uh, so yeah, uh, since you're a game developer, um, how do you feel about the entire conversation about game developers uh, unionizing? Um, so it's it's a definite uh, conversation that needs to happen. Now, to what degree we unionize is a question. In general, my stance has always been uh, that I am not for the unionizing just because it is so difficult to gauge the value proposition of individuals within a company because it's it's a creative endeavor and it's not the same as at least in the United States the unions traditionally would be like the railroad union or a plumbing union or something like that where the quality of work there's like some standard to it but because we're still such a new industry it's kind of hard to gauge that and that's also coming from somebody who is currently a contractor uh, at my company uh, where I don't, I'm not afforded the same rights as everyone else. Like I don't have health insurance paid through for my company. Um, and if we were to unionize, it would probably end up costing me my job and costing a lot of people their jobs. So the one way I look at it is um, the concept of a minimum wage and unemployment. So you cannot have a minimum wage and at the same time, want everybody to be employed. So if you want everybody to be employed, uh, you cannot have a minimum wage. But if you don't care about people being employed, having a minimum wage makes the quality of life better for people that are employed. So uh, if you want to have more people that are in game development, having a union isn't intuitively good for that in the sense that like, you're not going to be able to have as many indie games because people are going to have to be paying union benefits. And a lot of union, uh, a lot of indie game devs and companies and studios wouldn't be able to pay that. Now, of course, the EAs and the Activisions of the world, because of the money that they make, they could afford to, but it would definitely cut out the bottom tier of game developers and might, in my opinion, get rid of the indie environment entirely. Especially if people could be like, well, you know, I could work for your indie studio, but, you know, you're not up to union standards, so I'd much rather work for this company. Um, And at the same time, uh, California is very strict in defending game developers so uh companies that are not incorporated in uh in california uh have some benefits for contract workers so like for example because i technically work for warner brothers um they're not allowed to hire a contractor consecutively more than 12 months of a year so my contract ends after nine months and then i will have three to four months of potential unemployment where i'm gonna have to be waiting around for uh be, to be able to hi- to be able to be hired again by Warner Brothers because they can't hire me again without having to pay me benefits because that's California law. Now, if they were incorporated in a different state, that might be different, but if there was this blanket overriding uh statement saying everybody had to be unionized, uh that would be very difficult. And then on top of that, the extra difficulty is the fact that, you know, game development isn't necessarily centered in just one country. So Unions worked for the United States because the uh, 
you know, the people that were working within these unions were from the U.S., so the U.S. government had the ability to dictate these laws and rules. Game development, you know, uh, one thing brought up by Rami Ishmael during his, you know, hashtag one reason to be is game dev in different countries is exponentially different than it is in the United States, uh, say. So, you know, developers in Palestine or developers in Eastern European countries uh, might not have the same resources that game developers in San Francisco and California have, so they might not be able to demand rights in the same way. So it would be kind of a trickle-out effect, and if, say, you know, there was a big push for unionization in the United States, if it was cheaper to develop games in Poland, say, for um, uh, CD Projekt Red, you know, you might see more outsourcing of jobs to uh, more technically proficient people in developing uh, countries than there would in the United States. So you might see a massive uh, uh, brain drain of development talent in these countries. So it's it's a difficult question to tackle. And, uh, you know, props to the people that want to talk about, like uh, the Jason Schreiers of the world and, you know, the uh, mm-hmm. Greg Millers and, you know, all of them wanting to start this conversation. And I want to be involved in that conversation too, but I'm not as idealistic as some of them are. Like, I don't think the industry is going to unionize anytime soon. And sorry, sorry for that rant. That's just, you know, kind of my take from everything that's happened this week and having talked to a bunch of different devs uh, at GDC about it. Yeah, no, um, I'm not like very um, knowledgeable about like how, how, like how work, like contracts and all this fucking shit, how, how everything works, like the legalities of everything. So I can't really comment too much. I guess like all I have to say is like as long as developers are happy with uh, their work environment and how they feel like they're getting uh, paid uh, enough for their work and all this stuff. As long as that is the case, then I'm happy. Yeah, and I think that's something that's been evolving recently, not necessarily from any union standpoint, but just like, as you know, the indie scene has exploded over the last decade, and that's because of so many people that have been disgruntled. And when you see so many people leaving studios, then the onus is kind of on bigger developers to be like, okay, how can we make it better? And one great, like, one great way to look at it is, like, where I work, there is no mandated overtime or crunch. Like, it's not required at all. Mm-hmm. All of it is optional. And I, so, like, I was telling you before the show, I've been uh, working overtime for the last week since I got back. Um, and that's not because I have to. I do it because I care about my team members and I want to make sure that, like, I'm shouldering the burden to make their lives easier and make sure that like you know people don't have to stay extra time or you know feel like they have to stay extra time like i want to help my team and be a contributing member so i choose to be there but you know like uh in the past when crunch has been going on there have been times when i'm like hey you know what i'm a little burned out so i'm going to take a break these two days and kind of rest up and then come back and be 100 percent. and then other times uh, I just wanted to keep working, and my boss told me, he's like, hey, you need to go home. We're not going to let you stay anymore. You've been here the last eight days, so, you know, fuck off. Like, you need to get some sleep. You need to have a life outside of work. So, like, I think the industry is getting better in that sense, um, but I don't, and, and I think there's, like, an upward trajectory of that being a, a thing that's more, permea- you know, permeating to other studios, and I don't think we necessarily need unions to solve that, but yeah, it's, I agree. As long as developers are getting paid, uh, you know, for their work in a way that they think is uh, 
mutually agreeable and they're happy with their work-life balance, then, I mean, that's the ultimate goal. You want everybody to, who makes games to, you know, be happy with what they're working on and how they're working on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, I'm, I like uh, specifically on like you were mentioning Jason Schreier and Greg Miller before, and I assume you were more specifically referring to that uh, episode of Kind of Funny Games Daily where yeah they were talking about uh, unions and all that stuff, and I saw a lot of in in the chat because I was watching it live. A lot of people saying that they don't want um, game de- uh, game developers to unionize, unionize because that will make games more expensive. And to me, like I don't care if they unionize or not. Like as I said, all I care about is that they uh, feel like they're being treated appropriately and being paid appropriately for the work that they do. And to me, if that means that games become more expensive, sure, I don't care. Because what I care about is that the developers behind the games that I love are treated the way they are supposed to be. And um, yeah, like I don't want to get a game and then like, no, like, oh yeah, people fucking slaved to make this game and people were like, not paid enough to put them to boom to make this game and i'm sure that is the case with a lot of the games that i love but like i want the developers to um have a good work environment be treated appropriately and all this stuff and if that makes um makes games more expensive then sure then that's how it has to be yeah and i understand the concern people have for not wanting to pay more for games but Ironically, as of now, you know, games have stagnated in their price and have been $60 for a better part of a decade in the United States, Uh, and I can't speak for elsewhere, but, you know, they're going to be going up, and you see that with, you know, there's $60 for the game, and then the season pass is, like, anywhere between $20 to $40, so realistically, if you wanted to get a game day one, it's going to be $100, Um, and, like, that's kind of a large value statement to tell someone, you know, Shell out a hundred dollars for a game you're not quite sure of yet. And then there's and, uh, microtransactions, you know, loot boxes, and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, and that's that, that's tough. But you know, ironically, despite that, this is probably the most uh, cost-effective time to be a gamer in the history of gaming, just because yeah. you have resources like Humble Bundle, you have resources like you know the Xbox um, uh, Games for Gold, or you know the deals that they have with Gold, or the PlayStation Network, uh, you know, being really good and uh, Nintendo with the Nindies and Steam, obviously, uh, being a huge proponent of selling games at a discount. So uh, I like, and I was telling you beforehand, I just recently got Assassin's Creed Origins because it finally met my threshold of I could afford it because I wasn't going to pay hundred dollars for their, the game itself and all the DLC. And I waited until there was a sale and I got it for under fifty dollars and got the game and the uh, season pass for under fifty, which. MSRP is about $100 at this point, but it'll definitely change. Mm. Um, just because, you know, we have the ability to wait and do that. And for people that can't wait, it's unfortunate, but, uh, you know, I think it's still a very affordable time to game. And, you know, if the industry, and I, I don't think it's realistic that the industry unionizes, and if it did, I don't think that's going to affect the pricing of games. Uh, it's just going to affect the developers more so than the uh, cost to consumer, because, mm. you know, there's 
there is obviously a marketplace and there is assumed rules where as of now to get a game it's base game it's going to be $60 that might change soon but to be competitive the Activisions, Ubisofts, Microsofts of the world know that's where they need to sit in line and so they'll have to fit everything according to that price point so it's probably going to affect developers more than it would affect uh you know consumers but the developers it does affect those who stay employed will have a better quality of life those who aren't employed um it's it's gonna suck so we'll see where it goes but i'm actually very happy these conversations are happening so yeah so uh, there's obviously been a lot of talk like during the the loot box controversy that happened and all this stuff like some people saying that um instead of season passes and microtransactions and loot boxes and all this stuff we should raise game prices to 70 uh, instead of 60 dollars and um do you think that would actually solve that issue because to me i feel like if 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 the game gaming industry and the uh, and everyone becomes like, oh yeah, games are 70 bucks now. I feel like a lot of the quote-unquote evil uh, publishers will be like, oh yeah, we can raise games, game prices to 70 bucks and keep the microtransactions. I feel like that's actually what, what would happen. Um, so there's a lot to unpack there, but what I will say is... Um... In terms of like the quote unquote evil publishers, it's them trying to meet a bottom line. And, mm. you know, as much as people hate EA for so many reasons, they employ so many game developers and make so many dreams come true in terms of yeah. like bringing novel ideas and bringing entertainment to people. And I always found it comical that, like, you know, in the past years, they were voted the worst company in the US that two is years crazy. in a row. That is crazy. When, like, you know, at the, at the time in the political environment, like, uh, you know, the uh, BP oil spill had just happened and wreaked havoc in the Gulf of Mexico. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, you're going to mm -hmm. vote them. You're going to vote them the worst company just because you felt that their game was a little bit rushed or like it was lacking in some features. So it's, it's kind of comical to see that. And it, it just shows how spoiled we are as consumers and as an industry that, you know, we expect so much from people. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I will say is like in terms of loot boxes, my personal opinion on them is as long as the two instances where they're acceptable is if it is a free-to-play game yes. and that works as a progression system, uh, but it's not locking content. I mean, it could lock content, but like, you know, if you didn't pay anything for the game, that's mm -hmm. the way it's monetized. That's fine. If it's a $60 game, the loot boxes should be for purely aesthetic reasons. I think Overwatch does a great job of doing that. Now, it gets really dicey when you get a $60 game where there are loot boxes that affect progression in the way that we saw with Battlefront. Mm -hmm. Now, that is where it becomes very untasteful because the expectation is if you pay $60, you are getting everything included in the game. Uh, now, if there was a free... So I, I kind of like the way recently Rainbow Six Siege did it. They said, okay, there's the $40 version of the game that has uh, you know everything unlocked and you can play with all the operators. Or there is the $15 version of the game where you do not have all the operators, uh, but you're paying less and then you will have to progress and eventually, you know, buy uh, currency to unlock uh, uh, operators. So, like, there are, there are novel ways uh, developers like Ubisoft are addressing it. And, like, you know, it's, it's good to see that innovation happening. 
Um, but at the at, at the same time, I think this entire loot box discussion is also indicative of a young, growing industry mm. that doesn't quite understand what it is yet, in the same way that movies do, in the same way the music industry does, and we're gonna trip up. And it's it's kind of funny to be watching this entire loot box fiasco occur as I work at NetherRealm, considering that NetherRealm was once or what you know what NetherRealm is now. So it used to be Midway Games. This game studio was at the center of the political fervor and debate for the ESRB mm-hmm. because at the time Mortal Kombat was considered so overtly violent that it was affecting children and how they perceived violence in video games. And that's still a topic we talk about today, and that caused the birth of the ESRB. So it's funny to see that, you know, um, uh, you know, a bunch of gaming organizations, ESRB, IGDA, everybody trying to address loot boxes and creating all these new measures in the same way that people were scrambling to create the ESRB back then. And I think it's going to self-correct in time, and I think the writing's on the wall for companies like EA knowing they can't do stuff like that again. Uh, and if they do, it needs to be some sort of meaningful loot box. And I think Destiny kind of sort of did a good job with that, or it did, at least Destiny 2, with uh, the in- the Bright Ingrams and all that stuff, and it being purely aesthetic. But yeah, when it comes to loot boxes, that's kind of the only palpable way consumers can really see it. Anything other than that, I think, is just uh, not going to fly anymore. Mm. Yeah, like you, you mentioned uh, earlier there, like, um, if your game is free... I don't give a shit about how you, how you earn the money. Like, if you have a bunch of microtransactions and and uh, loot boxes and all this stuff, like, the game is fucking free. <laughs> like, you yep. need to get your money somehow. Just make make sure mm-hmm. it's like uh, respectful towards the player and all of this stuff. Like, you don't want to be constantly like um, bombarded with ways to buy things. Like, you want to at least make sure the gamer is having a good time, uh, but still try to, um, be able to get your money somehow. So, like, as long as the game is free, obviously, like, be creative with your monetize, uh, plans. Um, but yeah, like, as you were saying, uh, with, when, if the game is actually, like, if it's a paid game, then you need to be more um you need to think a little bit more about how you how you do things um and uh something i specifically was thinking about and i was wondering how you how you feel about this um so in terms of if you look at a game like world of warcraft like world of warcraft i don't know if it has it anymore but it at least used to have a subscription fee it still does yeah yeah and if you look at overwatch Overwatch, Overwatch's basically subscription fee is the loot boxes, right? Yeah, that's basically how they took like the what used to be a subscription fee and made it something more like optional. Um, and I think at least like when it comes to um a game like Overwatch that is supposed to be the only entry in basically the only entry in the franchise and it's gonna be live for a long time then I think you really need to think about, like, how do we fund this game for a long period of time? Uh, but, like, in terms of of um, Battlefront 2, a game that is already a sequel to another game and will probably be replaced in two years by uh, Battlefront 3, do we really need a long-term solution for funding this game? Yeah, not necessarily. Um, and... You know, I, I, 
I don't think, I mean, they might make another one, uh, but based off the reactions they had, uh, they would be better off creating something similar to like Overwatch in the sense that it has longevity. And I think that's the only way they're going to be able to convince consumers to come back at this point, because there's already so much bad blood with yeah. everything that has gone on. And just from what I know and what I can talk about of that, like, you know, Disney was not happy with EA mm. after the way it was received. And I think that was widely publicized in the news about how EA was like, yeah, we can't have something like that. We're supposed to be a family-friendly brand, and being seen in this light is not conducive to the kind of uh, brand imaging we're looking for. So already there's talks about, you know, how that's going to affect next iterations of games, and especially with, you know, uh, the canning of the single-player game uh, that was going to come out. Um, that's caused a lot of bad blood. So, mm. uh, yeah, in, in terms of, like, games as a service, I think... The reason Overwatch, and this is kind of cleverly done, but the only reason Overwatch has been so successful is because Blizzard has the know-how of doing games as a service because they have done it longer than anyone else because mm. of World of Warcraft. Because uh, they've been doing that since like you know, 2002, 2003, I think. And it's still, World of Warcraft is a, is a subscription-based model. Uh, I think there are still concurrently close to 8 million players. It's not many. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, in terms of like the scope of other games, like GTA V has you know, sold over like 100 million copies or whatever that stupid number is mm. at this point, like the highest selling game in the U.S. alone, probably globally. Um, but they don't need a huge install base. They just need a dedicated uh, core. And I think it's smart the way they're monetizing Overwatch now, especially with the Overwatch competitive league, because now they actually have owners of leagues. Uh, they have players that are playing. They have people that want to watch uh and it's getting more and more competitive, so that's one way they could subsidize this league by working with them, because there's always money to have in some sort of sport league with it. So, uh, yeah, I, I think Overwatch is probably one of the better pioneers in our industry about how you can make a good games as a service, and that's the model to follow. Mm. Yeah, and uh, you you were you were saying like, yeah, we'll probably not see uh, Star Wars Battlefront three, and I meant it more in like. We're looking at EA's plan. Like, EA is obviously... Like, if EA had their way, they're obviously making a third one. Um, so... Yeah. Um, but yeah, like... Well, EA is known for, uh, like, doing their annualized franchises. Like, they're known for doing a Madden game every year, an NHL game every year, a FIFA game every year. So it's just kind of this very iterative process where they they build upon systems they already have. And some people could argue that that's cheap or that's... You know, a cash grab, I'd argue that it's just them being able to innovate like constantly and hone their craft, and that's why they're so mm -hmm. good at what they do and why they own sports, because they're so good at making those games that people like playing. And if that wasn't the case, there would be a competitor, but there's not, so. Mm. So how do you feel, uh, as you are a producer, right? Yeah, what do you think is the most effective way to like structure um a game studio like if you if you had the opportunity right now to take um basically all of netherrealm and like hey i'm gonna structure this the way i want to because the way i feel is the most uh effective way to do it like how do you would you do it like in terms of um uh like um company like um uh like structure in terms of like um, the ladder basically of employment if that makes sense and also like how people um spend their time and 
uh, like the scheduling of people's time and all of that stuff. Like, how would you structure that in a like a yeah in in a AAA studio? Yeah. So in terms of time management, I think the way NetherRealm does it now is very good in the sense that you know you so my workday is generally from 10 a.m. till 6 p.m. Which I'm more than happy with. That allows me extra time in the morning, and also, I mean, there there are a lot of older people in the studio who have kids. So being able to go into work a little bit later than everyone else allows them the ability to drop their kids off at school and like do stuff like that, mm-hmm. uh, which is good. Uh, but in terms of if I was to be a, a producer there and structure it, uh, I think one of the most important things that has to go into place just in any studio is that. Uh, best idea wins out. So the idea that in a lot of companies, you'll see that there is this vision for a game and it's already designed and everybody needs to slave away at making this game the way it was intended to be made as opposed to uh, an organic thing. Like, So for example, I had friends that worked at Volition when Saints Row was first coming about and the way that they made the game was they're like, okay, well, we want to have this in the game. We want to have, uh, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Saints Row franchise, but it's a GTA, except, yeah. So there were conversations of like, should we have a giant dildo bat in this game? And people were like, no. Other people were like, yes. They had a conversation about it. And ultimately, in the end, you know, it wasn't the producer's call. It was everyone else saying, okay, this is where, or this is the flavor of the game. And we want to add our, our two cents into this game and add our like opinion on this game. because. If people feel invested in the games that they're working on, they're going to have a better quality of work. The producer's job is just to make sure that all the roadblocks are removed, to make sure that everybody is able to do their best work, and making sure everybody is able to uh, create a game in an orderly fashion. So basically, herding a bunch of cats. That's, That's the job of a producer, to make sure the creative guys are able to do what they need to do within the timetable allocated. So there are really good uh, talks at GDC talking about uh, managing this. So the idea of, you know, let's say our timetable is, you know, we only have enough money to fund this project for a year as an indie studio or as, you know, a, a bigger company like a Warner Brothers funded studio. We have a year to do this uh, and that's our budget. So what can we fit into this year? And then what can we push off as a feature update later to work on and being able to pick what's important and then from those important things, sourcing it to the team and saying, okay, if we do work on this, what are we looking for? Um, so being able to crowdsource and pick the best ideas, not just the ideas of the people that are at the top. And then in terms of a company structure, uh, I think it's very important to have leads uh, for each of the uh, disciplines. So having an art lead, a design lead, an engineering lead, a QA lead, um, a production lead, uh, people who could, you know, at least in game development, you're going to have uh, so I work in agile development, so we'll have our scrums uh, every once in a while, and I'm not always a part of the scrum because I'm not a lead, but my manager, uh, he's the QA lead, he'll go to all those scrums and he'll disseminate the information passed around there, and that way it's easier to get information out a lot quicker to a lot of people. So he'll give us our task email saying, okay, uh, this is our current change list, and these are all the issues we need to address. Uh, this is what the intended uh, design is. Or this specific feature, and then we'll have it listed down in Confluence and talk about like all the things that um, are intended by design and stuff like that. Um, so having the leads being able to talk and figure out, you know, what's the best approach for making this feature work and whatnot, but then also being able to take that criticism 
from their teams and voice it at the scrums. That's super important. So obviously, like communication is key. And uh, also um, within a studio, just being able to approach somebody and not being afraid to talk to someone just because of their position is hugely key. So like as a QA or being in QA, if I ever have any question about any design feature, anything in engineering, anything in art, I can literally get up from my desk and walk over to the artist or walk over to the engineer or walk over to the designer and say like, hey, why are we doing this? And should we be doing this? And then that will start a conversation that we could then loop production into and say, you know, okay, uh, like, and I can't talk about certain things I'm working on, but like there was an instance of a feature that wasn't included in one of the titles we're working on. And I was like, hey, why isn't that in the game? And they're like, oh, that's a good question. So we went to the production team and we're like, hey, uh, was there any intended functionality with this feature? And they're like, not really. And I'm like, okay, well, I think it would be beneficial to the end user. So they're like, okay, that sounds good. We'll put that in the next update. We'll work on programming that. And because you came up with this idea, we want you to be, uh, would you mind taking point on this and kind of helping design and helping art uh, kind of figure out how we should go about doing this? And I'm like, sure. So they like they delegated responsibility in me for this feature. They made me have a sense of ownership in a way that I probably wouldn't have had if I was in a company that wouldn't allow me to do that. Mm. So in terms of game development, uh, just making sure everybody feels like they, like making sure everybody feels invested in what they're working on. I think that's key. So, um, and there's probably other nitty gritty that I can get into, but that seems to be the one thing that I think is most important for game dev, making sure uh, everybody feels included and actually has a voice in the project they're working on. Yeah, yeah, yeah def- definitely. Like, I think, um, uh, like, when it comes to, obviously, like, uh, someone who is kind of a, a designer or on a bigger project, it's more like a director position. Um they obviously have more of a say in the project than anyone else because they're they're the one like kind of with the main idea to begin with. They're they're the one with the vision of where everything is supposed to go. But I think it's very important in that position that you're not like um, stubborn or you think that your idea is always the best idea. So you always need to like listen to everyone else and make sure that. Um, is my vision of this game the the perfect way to go um or should um uh maybe like like there could be someone in like programming or something who's coming up with an idea for something that is extremely out of his pr- profession but like maybe it's a good idea and you need to consider it yeah but then when you are in those instances of like you know your idea is the best you just and sometimes you win those battles, sometimes you lose those battles, and the only thing that that does is just makes you better at being able to convince people of your ideas, mm. and that's also critical. And I think that's the job of a producer. Like sometimes it's difficult to cut certain features because again, there are budgets, and you know we live in the real world. And if it was perfect, then we would be doing what Todd Howard's doing at Bethesda and taking about eight years to make a uh, another Elder Scrolls game because he has all the time in the world and all the money in the world. And sometimes deadlines are a good thing. Because that allows you to be intuitive in the same way that we talked about pre-show about, uh, or I think it was pre-show, uh, about you know why Nintendo makes such well-designed games. It's because they have limitations. And having those limitations, I would argue, make games better. So production has a vital role to make sure projects work. Because there have been too many projects on too many games where there was an unlimited budget or an unlimited timetable and just ended up failing. Mm. Um, so it's important to know when enough is enough. And I think that's where production comes in. So... Uh, you know, shameless plug, but shout out to my producers. Uh, 
they know who they are uh, for doing the work they do because it's it's literally like herding a bunch of cats sometimes because some you know artistic people just like having their way and like doing their thing and mm-hmm. sometimes it's hard to come to terms with letting their passion or their baby go but sometimes it has to uh, but I think we do a pretty good job of balancing those two uh, those two uh, extremes sometimes yeah um, so anything else you want to say before we finish off this episode uh, I think that's it on my end uh, just a uh, thanks to you for uh, having me on the show yeah no problem um, it's always fun to talk to a bunch of different uh, people like you like yeah, you're you're more like focused on PC gaming, and you're also a game developer, and also uh, always very interesting to to talk to new people and new perspectives and all this stuff. Um, but yeah, that is it for Rebreak Radio episode twenty five. Um, where can people find you at, Mike? Uh, you guys can find me on my Twitter at Ready Edgemont. Uh, you could also find me on my YouTube channel. Uh, which will be going through some changes soon, but uh, that's just Ready Edgemont as well on uh, on YouTube. Yeah, links to that will be in the description as well. Uh, you can find me at Dennis underscore Lofgren on Twitter. You can f- uh, follow the channel at Rebreak Radio on Twitter. Uh, subscribe, like the video, comment below, all this stuff. You've heard it a million times. Um, also, go ahead and join the rebreak network discord group we have a lot of awesome people and i wouldn't have found you and a lot of the other guests that i've had on the last like i think six episodes of the podcast uh wouldn't have found them uh without having without having made this group so if you're looking for collaborators and all this stuff you can find them there and um uh yeah as i said Uh, That's it for Rebrick Radio episode 25, and we'll see you again in the next episode. Bye. Bye.